center. Julian has it. He has a breakaway. Julian short-handed. Julian scores! Jacob Julian with 19.6 seconds left. And the London Knights are going to finish off three games in three nights with three wins. Jacob Julian icing what would be the Knights' third win in three days over a three-game stretch and a big catapult in them over the Thursday to Saturday. Episode 85 of the Night Shift. Cal Gamard and Mike Stubbs, your hosts as always. And you can follow us on socials and keep up with everything London Knights at Stubbs980 with two Bs. At Kyle Grimard, G-R-I-M-A-R-D. And you're starting to see more and more of the NHL teams reshare the Knights accounts with all of their prospects starting to flourish and really get themselves set. Jacob Julian, a draft pick of the Winnipeg Jets, he gets a little bit of a bump from their uh, team pages. Denver Barkey had himself an incredible weekend. Easton Cowan continuing his point streak. And Mike, the Knights go three for three. One, by the way, very exciting game, which we've talked about already on the podcast, the 10-7 win over the Windsor Spitfires, a close overtime victory on Friday, and then a very good, solid team win on Saturday. And if you set it out, two weeks ago, Knights had three games in three days, and there wasn't as much gas against the Kitchener Rangers. Now, the Rangers are a good team. They beat Sault Ste. Marie on Sunday, made it almost look easy. They started on fire and they've continued on fire. They've got Roman Schmidt back. So the Rangers lead the OHL in points. Number two right now is the London Knights. And finishing off a 3-3 three and three against the Kitchener Rangers with a loss, that happens. But this week, you would look at it and say, Windsor, Owen Sound, And then Guelph, Guelph being one of the stingiest teams in the OHL, this schedule does not play into the hands of three wins, Kyle. Three points out of six, two points out of six, and you could explain it away very easily. The fact that the Knights take six out of six took some doing. Took Michael Simpson's seventh career shutout. He was great in the third period against Guelph. Maybe the most complete game by the London Knights. Took Denver Barkey and Easton Cowan just being outright on fire. Both of them are now on seven-game point streaks. How about Denver Barkey? We're recording this before the OHL names its player of the week. How do you beat two goals, six assists for eight points with a game winner? Denver Barkey's got to be the OHL player of the week. And then... The idea that you're just able to keep your legs somehow into that game against Guelph. And the Knights really controlled play. This was impressive. This was an impressive weekend. It really was. And again, you saw three wins in three very different ways. You saw a very high scoring, very unorthodox affair over in Windsor. You saw a very close, tight knit overtime game, which we saw Denver Barkey score the game winner where that game could have gone either way. You had chances at both ends. Owen Wilmore, by the way, I want to give him a shout out, was spectacular. He made, made, I believe, 38 saves on 42 shots in that win on Friday. And then, like you said, Mike, probably their most complete game up until about the halfway mark of the third third period I believe the Knights had only surrendered about 15 or 16 shots on net before Guelph started to try and pour it on and get back into the game at that point it was already three nothing London before Jacob Julian iced it afterwards but you're watching the Knights win and they did this last year too they're winning in very different ways and when you see a team winning in you know they win a high scoring affair they win a close tight-knit defensive game and then they win in a very complete game teams that 
no team, good teams just know how to win. It doesn't matter how they win, but the fact of the matter is they find ways to win. And the London Knights probably found three different ways to win three games this weekend. They did. You're right. And that's exactly what you want. When you can be that versatile, when you don't have to rely on low scoring games to win, when you're not trying to outscore your opponent and win 5-4 every night, you're right. And when things get tight, when you have to come back, look at that third period against the Owen Sound attack. It went back to London versus Windsor all over again, where we saw six goals scored in that third period, and Sam O'Reilly had to tie it late. And Sam O'Reilly, number one right now in rookie scoring in the OHL. He and Jakob Fibiger of the Mississauga Steelheads are technically tied, but they always give the nod to the player with more goals, and Sam O'Reilly has seven. So he leads the OHL in rookie scoring right now. And he will be, we talked about this going into the season, someone who climbs the charts on those draft lists because he is a hockey player. And the the more he plays, the better he gets. You watch him on the wall right now. The way he is reading where pucks are going, the way he goes after them, and then the plays he makes when he gets them. It's been a really impressive start for Sam O'Reilly. And what else did we talk about? We talked about the month of November and the month of December and how things, for whatever reason, seem to change for the London Knights. You go through the month of September and October, there's an awful lot of learning. The Knights, so far in November, have played six games and they've won five of them. You add in that win over the Ottawa 67s to end off October. They've won six of seven. So they've won five of six games so far in November. This team is starting to show what it can be. And Mike, when did this start to happen? After the game against Ottawa. We (laughs) talked about this on the podcast. For some reason, when the Knights play the Ottawa 67s, it is a get-right game. It's a get-things-back-on-track. And since then, the Knights have propelled themselves. They've won five of their last six games, including two three-game sets over the last two weekends. Their their power play starting to click. They've gotten some shorthanded goals on the penalty kill, and they're just coming off their most complete game of the season. I don't know what it is, Mike, but anytime Ottawa comes to town or they go to Ottawa, they find themselves for a little bit, and it's happening again. You bet. And you mentioned the shorthanded goals. The Knights now have seven on the season, and that leads the OHL. So we're starting to see them top some statistical categories as well. And you mentioned the goaltending, whether it was Michael Simpson on Saturday, Owen Wilmore on Friday. You've got a tandem there. And that is such a healthy thing to have. You've got two goaltenders and then the production that they're getting, Casper Halton and two more goals. He's a guy who, when he scores once in a game, he usually scores again. He has five games now, and we're not that far into this season. He has five games where he has two goals. Hasn't completed the hat trick yet, but you know that's coming. But five games out of 18? That's a lot. That's a lot to have multi-goal games. And that trigger on the power play is great. It's like Austin Matthews in the NHL where he, uh, you know, he's got three hat tricks already and leads the uh, NHL in scoring. Gasper Altonen has five games of two goals and it's just it's fun to see he's starting to heat up a little bit and they're starting to get an identity on the power play that one timer is slowly becoming that number one option teams are going to start recognizing that try to take it away it's going to open up room for other guys like Cowan and Barky we saw Oliver Bonk be set up in the slot and in front of the net for a couple of opportunities there too and 
it's they're starting to figure things out. This is when teams do it early in the season. They test some things out. They feel it. And now the Knights are starting to get into a groove a little bit. Fans, I know, were expressing concerns over discipline. And the Knights do remain right now the most penalized team in the Western Conference. Mississauga actually has more penalty minutes overall. But that was a concern for fans that there were a lot of power plays that Owen Sound had. little playing with fire. The penalty kill was very good against the Owen Sound attack. But the attack did find ways to score on the man advantage. And then you saw things different on Saturday night. And that's what you always look for. If there is an issue, and this happens in life as well, when something's not going well, you do your best to correct it in life. And if it's corrected pretty quickly, well, then you hardly even notice it. Guelph went 0 for 4 on the power play on Saturday. The Knights were 1 for 3. So it was nothing out of the ordinary. So they know that there were penalties against Owen Sound that they wish they wouldn't have taken. The retaliation stuff, you never want to see that. But overall, it somehow did not hurt the Knights this weekend. And now you get more attention to not taking those retaliatory penalties or not taking the penalties that you shouldn't take penalties are going to happen. And that is something that, uh, that will make them even tougher to play against. Yeah, very much so. And uh, I'm just, I'm excited to see how the Knights build off of this and if they can find a way to get, um, they'll play the game that they did on Saturday. And if they can do that game plan consistently, one, you know, Dale Hunter is going to be incredibly pleased with it because you know, after that 10, seven game, he was sitting there going, we are not doing this every game, but uh, it's, you can see the coaching come into effect. It's as the weekend went along, you just saw the coaching almost more and more play a factor in how the Knights played and game plan against said teams and you watch them go from a 10-7 matchup to a close overtime matchup to then a 4-0 shutout victory in which where it was their most complete game. It was very fun to be a part of and get to, to see, especially as the weekend went along. And Kyle, you mentioned the coaching. Some of the subtle things that you were able to watch Dale Hunter do, as much as you're playing three games and three nights, you had Evan Van Gorp, who played two of those games. You had Ryder Bolton, who played two of those games instead of three. You had Jared Woolley, who was called up and played a game. Chris O'Flaherty played in two of those games. So you're seeing a good part of the lineup, at least in terms of the younger players, being able to rotate through. And so not everybody is playing the massive minutes. And the way that the things went on Saturday night, the Knights had themselves a 3 nothing lead after two. And that allowed Dylan Hunter to take some of the players who played an awful lot, Easton Cowan and Denver Barkey and Ruslan Gazazov and Max McHugh, and you didn't see them quite as much in the third period, which again helped them because that's when their legs would have been feeling it. And the rest of the team was able to carry this through and they wound up with a 4 nothing shutout. So those little coaching things that Dale does so well, whether it's either competition to get those last spots in the lineup, or in this case, making sure that a young player who's not used to doing three games in three nights at this level of intensity is not going to be exposed because, you know, fatigue turns into a lack of concentration and a mistake is made. You try and keep everybody as fresh as possible. And the Knights did a very good job of that. When we look to Denver Barkey, He's someone who is having himself a season, and Rick Stedman has talked about him and and talked about how good 
he expected to see Denver Barkey play and Easton Cowan play this year. Barkey is right now fourth in league scoring. He's got 11 goals and 15 assists for 26 points in 18 games. So that is an outstanding start. Easton Cowan, not far behind in points. And remember, Cowan has played fewer games than anybody in the top 10 because he was still with the Toronto Maple Leafs. He's got 24 points in 13 games. Both are on seven-game point streaks. Denver Barkey ended the game with an overtime winner against the Owen Sound attack, part of a four-point night. Again, we haven't heard who the OHL Player of the Week will be, but if it's not Denver Barkey, I'll be shocked. I've tried to crunch all the numbers. I can't find anybody who has the numbers that he has, and whether you factor in something else, don't know, but he's definitely in the conversation right now, and we had a conversation with him after that overtime winner. That was uh, obviously an eventful game, a lot of up, ups and downs throughout that game, but um, obviously really cool to, to be able to finish that out and score the, the OT winner there. It was really cool. Um, I kind of shot it, and I saw it trickle behind the goalie, and uh, I couldn't see the puck, so I kind of turned around and just waited for the fans to uh, either erupt or just give me like an awe. So uh, when, the, when they erupted, that was pretty pretty awesome, so I assumed I scored and continued on with my silly, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Cool, cool moment that, that I'll never forget and obviously a huge one for, the, for, for, for our team. So Budweiser Gardens let you know that you'd scored the overtime winner. All credit to them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Let's talk about the rest of the game. After a 10-7 game, of course, it would be 1-1 through two periods. The third period, did it get a little 10-7? Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, uh, that wins a game. Good, good to win that game, but obviously we got a, we got a lot to work on in the, on the defensive side of the puck. And um, yeah, I thought we played a pretty tight game, and I think just the penalties kind of uh, set that game loose in the third period there. But um, like I said, happy to get the win, and um, hopefully we can play a bit tighter for all 60 minutes tonight. London Knights forward Denver Barkey on having some fun and producing points as we continue to move through the Knights and the Guelph Storm will now meet up on Wednesday, November 15th. Second game between those two teams. The Knights will then come home and face a Flint team that is playing much better. And then they go to Erie on Saturday, November the 19th. So lots to come. Kyle, we saw some three-on-three overtime. And that three-on-three overtime, three-on-three is really starting to change. When it first began, Wayne Gretzky called it the greatest thing to come to hockey in a long time. And he was absolutely right. But Dylan Hunter made the best point of all. Dylan sees through so many things and always comes out with, whether it's a line or an explanation or something. Here is Dylan Hunter, Knights assistant coach, on -on three-on-three overtime. Talk to us about Easton Cowan's overtime shift. He got caught where he could not get it. That was a two-minute and 28-second shift, and he almost scored. I know, yeah. I mean, he has a motor. (laughs) I mean, I think I'd be in the ER with that kind of shift length, even when I was playing. Um, But, uh, you know, we actually just did video on it, and we showed NHL clips. It's like 30 to 40 seconds, and it looks like a quick break, but if you miss it, then they get the puck back. You might not get it back for another minute, and 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 you kind of waste the OT. So we're just kind of showing them opportunities where instead of trying to go for that quick break, not him. It was the passer. I mean, it's uh, of just keeping it behind the net, change the three guys, get new fresh ones out there, and then try again. So something to learn from. Yeah. How much is three on three overtime still evolving in that way? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, we always say the, the coaches will find a way to to make it boring and. Uh, and yet we were just watching NHL last night, and, and they, they have. It's possession, right? If you don't like it, like basically what they did to us last night. I mean, I know the fans don't like it, but as a coach, I'm like, eh, they got it down. <laughs> and uh, so if you don't like your, you know, you don't go in three on three, 
usually in the zone, guys have it figured out now with the switches. You have to get them off the rush. So you're waiting for a team to change or you're waiting for a fumble or a rebound and you're back the other way. So they figured it out. We even heard some boos in three-on-three overtime. That is Dylan Hunter, Knights assistant coach. Coaches can make anything boring. And (laughs) it's man-to-man, it's puck possession, and three-on-three overtime, Kyle, is turning into something that's a whole lot different than it used to be. Well, and and we see teams at the professional level put out specific players to take a face-off, whether it's third- or fourth-line guys who maybe aren't the most skilled players on the teams, just to get possession of the puck, and then we'll race to the bench to get their stars on. So if you have a superstar winger, that's not very good on the draw, but you ha- you need to get possession of the face off in order to then attack. You've seen coaches do that before. And I, I love Knights fans for this. They are all about it because you know, if the Knights were doing exactly what, what, um, what, uh, what, what was going on on a Friday night, you know that they'd be cheering and getting possession. And all of a sudden it's the op- uh, opposing team that does it. And Knights fans will let you hear it, but you know, it's, it's, it's becoming, the more tape and the more film you get on different structures and how the game is played. It's not always hungo fun. Everything is going to be fantastic. The players want to win. The coaches want to win. They're trying to find strategies in order to do that. You would obviously like it to be a little bit more entertaining, but if the coaches think that it's going to give you an advantage of keeping puck possession, circling and resetting themselves, it's like in basketball. When the offensive team takes a shot and the rebound goes up and the offensive team regains possession, the ball goes back up to the top of the key, the shot clock resets, and you redo the entire possession. We're kind of starting to see that now a little bit more, but it is nice when we do get the odd overtime, Mike, where it's just back and forth, nonstop, two-on-one, three-on-one, over breakaway, you name it. And we're going to get those, but sometimes it's going to be what it was on Friday night. Look at what Owen Sound was able to do. Easton Cowan got trapped on the ice and he was out there for two minutes and 28 seconds and then very nearly ended it, got a shot on goal right before he turned and went to the bench at about the 220 mark of his shift. And he was gassed. We didn't see him for the rest of the overtime, but that's what will happen. He got stuck out there because it is man to man. And you you can't leave your man if you go to the bench. And so as Dylan Hunter pointed to, they actually had to talk to the team about that. That's why you're taking the puck back in behind your net. That's why you're changing those players. And that's important to do to make sure that you're getting the line changes in. Because look at the rule change that took three-on-three overtime and turned it a bit on its ear where you have to change ends. So you have the long change. So this is the kind of thing. I really look back at that rule change now, Kyle, and I say, that's something that doesn't work. You need to you need to get rid of that because that's one of the reasons why teams are taking so long and, and why they'll go back in behind their net to protect the puck to get those changes in because you can't risk those changes on the fly as play is continuing. Whereas if you were closer to your own zone, I think you would. So I think that's been a bad change to three on three overtime. They need to change that back and not switch ends. They need to be able, they need to do that. And then also just extend it. I think if you make it, uh, we've heard a lot of people talk about this, how they're not in love with the shootout, but if you find a way to extend it from five to even seven minutes, maybe, or an eight minute period, you might get a lot more finishes in overtime though. The Knights have been great at that this season and finishing games in overtime when the games go to it but no I totally agree with you changing ends like that it it causes for a lot of problems and it doesn't give 
your team the opportunity to change, especially when you don't have possession of the puck. And that's proven to be a big killer for a lot of teams and a lot of players out there. And like you mentioned, Easton Cowan having a two plus minute shift in overtime isn't ideal to him. It's not ideal to Dale. It's not ideal to anybody. No, but it happens because he couldn't leave his man and Owen Sound kept possessing the puck. And then when they didn't, there was a chance to score. And Easton Cowan's really good at doing that. We had Chris O'Flaherty make his London Knights debut. We had a chance to meet Chris O'Flaherty, sit down with him and talk about the fact that he very nearly began his Knights career against the team that drafted him, the Windsor Spitfires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been nice to have my first game as a Knight there, but um, looking forward to the next ones and playing against some. So, yeah. What do you know about the London Knights and coming to London? Well, obviously I know even before playing in the OHL just how historic of a, of a junior hockey club uh, they are and how many NHL players they produce. It's pretty unbelievable. And just how they're always strong every year, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. I mean, and, and I'm honored to be a part of it. Talk to us a little bit about growing up, how you got into hockey. Yeah, so my I have an older brother, uh, Jack. He's two and a half years older than me. Uh, so I saw him playing hockey, and I kind of just took a, took, took a try at it and actually didn't end up liking it at first. And then a year later, my sixth birthday, my mom always tells me the story. I, I, I went downstairs and I said, uh, Mom, I, I want to play hockey. And I think my brother had a big part of, of, of that. And, and also the Chicago Blackhawks winning a lot of Stanley Cups uh, three and six years. So I think both those things kind of played a big role in that. And yeah, just ended up loving the game ever since. Being in that area at the time when the Blackhawks were doing that, I mean, the Cubs hadn't even won the World Series yet. It was Blackhawks. What was it like being a Blackhawks fan? Well, it was good. <laughs> it was really good. It was it was cool seeing like my 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 favorite team win all the time, and and it was awesome being a fan. So, yeah, I, I still have vivid memories uh, of their run and. Yeah, it was it was cool cool to see for sure. How old do you think you were, Chris, when you thought, you know what, I can go somewhere with this game? I think uh, I think when I was maybe maybe ten, that was that was when I was uh, really really dedicating like every day. I mean, I was earlier, but it was when you know I was like playing on the H two selects and. Uh, I ended up being uh, one of the better forwards at the end of the summer in my eyes, and I started out not so great, but I think around then I I started to realize, you know, if I keep working at it, that I can keep improving and and moving up in the game, and obviously that's a young age, but I came to that realization at that age that, like, you know, I'm going to dedicate every day uh, to the the sport, and I've been doing that ever since. What do you want to bring to the Knights is a final question. What I want to bring to the Knights, I want to bring a lot of energy, a big power forward that will hit, compete as hard as you can every single night, and do do everything I can to help the team win. Be a team first player with a great attitude, and yeah, just play as hard as I can every night. Welcome to London. Thanks for this. Thank you so much. Knights forward Chris O'Flaherty. A couple of other Knights notes or former Knights notes or maybe future Knights notes. The under-17s ended in pretty dramatic fashion. Canada White ended up beating Team USA 2-1 in overtime. And Rob Simpson, a part of Team Canada in helping to put the team together in a management and scouting capacity. So congratulations to Knights Associate General Manager Rob Simpson on that. And Knights 
First round pick in 2023, William Moore did lead the tournament in scoring. Canada White managed to keep him quiet through the gold medal game, but he did finish with five goals and 11 assists in seven games in the tournament. Kyle, the only thing we haven't talked about yet, the Knights will take on the Guelph Storm. In a rematch coming up on November 15th, we'll have that on 980 CFPL beginning at 6 o'clock. Remember, the game's a 6.30 puck drop. Guelph is trying something different this year. Their Wednesday games are 6.30 puck drops. Be interesting to see whether it's like the Anaheim Ducks. Anaheim, because of the traffic, if they make it a long way into the playoffs and it's an 8 p.m. Eastern start, people miss the first period because they're just stuck. They're stuck in traffic. I don't know whether that will happen this time around, but if this works, we see it in baseball sometimes where they will have 640 starts. You wonder whether maybe we see a little bit of an earlier start during the week. We've already seen all of the weekend starts changed largely from 730 to 7 o'clock. Kyle, can we go earlier? I was going to mention, you know, it's it, the Knights have already done that going from a 7.30 to 7 o'clock on the Friday and Saturday nights. Potentially, I think I think the 7 o'clock might be a good time, especially on the Friday, Saturday nights for the London Knights. Their Sunday, Sunday games are normally around two anyway, so that wouldn't factor into it. But I think it gives people a little bit of time to finish work if you work till 4 or 5 o'clock to go home, to change, to get ready, and then potentially go out, maybe have something to eat, and then, and then afterwards go to the uh, game. But Hey, who knows? Maybe they tried for a year, see how it sticks. I'm listen, earlier times for me work. We'll see how it works in Guelph. I'll let you know when we have our next podcast on Thursday. Before we close out, the London Knights had their annual Remembrance Day ceremony before the game involving the London Knights and the Guelph Storm. And junior hockey is so intertwined with the Canadian military from the Memorial Cup to some of the Memorial Arenas the teams have played out of. And then you look at back in 1919, the First World War had ended, but you had the first Memorial Cup game interrupted by a parade of soldiers returning home from the First World War. And the ages of the players and the ages of the soldiers in those great wars, they certainly coincide. So there is so much appreciation for the Canadian military throughout the Canadian Hockey League. And the Knights have a ceremony every year where a massive red carpet is rolled out, where veterans come out and they are honored as they leave the ice. The Knights typically get off their bench to shake their hands, to express their thanks. And this year, both the London Knights and the Guelph Storm got off their benches and lined the red carpets. It was a scene that gave you chills, as was the sound of the ovations that all of the veterans received, standing ovations. But there was there was just that extra notch that the crowd was able to get to. The appreciation certainly was demonstrated by the entire crowd at Budweiser Gardens. And two of the veterans on hand were Corporal George Herbert Beardshaw, who is 100 years old. He was born in South Yorkshire, England, and he ended up coming to Canada and fought in the Second World War. And we had 98-year-old Jack Byrne, and he is Sir Jack Byrne. He has been knighted. And incredible to hear their stories. And we're actually going to hear a little bit from Sir Jack Byrne before the podcast ends. But Kyle, I know you had a chance to talk with both Corporal Beardshaw and Sir Jack Byrne before the game. 
I did. And and both just incredible, outstanding men whose accolades obviously involved them getting knighted by the French order. But I talked a little bit more in depth with Sir Jack Byrne, who made it very clear. He walked up, we interacted with each other for a bit. And he said, when I go out there, because he started sitting in a chair, he said, I am standing up and walking across that welcome mat. And then he talked about the pucks back in the day about how when games were played outside, they were frozen and harder. And we just, we shared a couple of laughs back and forth and just such an outgoing, outstanding individual. And I cannot imagine anything and everything that those individuals went through to get us to where we are today, but their attitudes towards life and towards interacting with people and being so kind and genuine and so humbling all at the same time games like these where Mike, we remember those who fought and who we are still admiring those who fought and served for us. Uh, These games hold a very special place in my heart and getting a chance to meet these individuals. I mean, we talk about, you know, players that go on and play in the National Hockey League and players that we grew up watching as, quote, idols. These are the individuals, Mike, that are have become my idols and who I look up to as inspiration. Absolutely. And you realize how lucky we are that after recognizing each of the veterans who happen to be with us on Saturday night, how lucky we are just to be able to sit back and watch a game. And that's what we were doing. Yeah, Jack Byrne enlisted in the Canadian Army at the age of 15, and he was an instructor. And then as D-Day was getting closer, he knew what was coming. And he actually went to his superior and said, I need to be a part of this. And they said, well, you're you're someone who's been doing the training. He said, no, I need to be a part of this. And so they made him a part of this. And he landed on Juno Beach. And we always think of that as a day. It wasn't. It wasn't a day. We recognize it as a day. The fighting went on long after that. Three days after they landed at Juno Beach, he was shot in the shoulder. And that's where he picks up his story. Three days after being involved in D-Day, he was shot. And it by far did not end his contributions to what was happening. I came out for uh, uh, three weeks. All they did is just want to pull through, through the wound and patch it up and pack it. And I went back again. Back into battle. Yeah. So then the, uh, on the 13th of uh, 13th of September, I had uh, quite a night. I had to take an, uh, two officers, a major, who had to get a file tanks across the bridge. Uh, the next morning, and uh, uh, our platoon commander, who was a, one of these 90-day wonders, and he was a teacher, but he was a great guy. And anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, we got stopped by a patrol halfway through, and the patrols were coming in this direction, and they said, halt in German, and as soon as they said halt, I had a grenade out and a prearranged signal. I pushed the officers to one side, pulled the pin on the grenade, tossed it in the air just about where they were, and it exploded right over them, and all four of them were killed. And so, uh, and after we, I got the uh, two officers out of there, I asked him if he wanted to go on. He said, no, he said, I, I understand the situation. So he, uh, 
He recommended to the lieutenant that I be awarded a, a, a medal. Anyway, I said, uh, I didn't say anything about it. And he just told me uh, that I'll be doggone. I got wounded the next day. And he got killed the next day. As soon as I left him, <laughs> because I was, I, I was like his shepherd, because he didn't know too much about his own, but a real nice guy, and he used to talk about getting back and his teaching days and all this kind of stuff. But I spent the next, uh, oh, about uh, six months, I guess, uh, you know, five or six months, but in the hospital, and they operated on everything, valves and our whole thing. And you still have a bullet in you right now. In my back, yeah. yeah. That is incredible. Well, thank you so much for your service, and thank you so much for being here to help us remember today. Yeah. Sir Jack Byrne, as we close out another episode of The Night Shift. Remember how lucky we are to have what we have, to do what we do, and to be able to sit back and talk for the last almost 30 minutes about hockey players. That's something that sometimes we take for granted, and it's people like all of the veterans, including Jack Byrne, who we honored, and those who were honored elsewhere who make that possible. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. And uh, we will continue to honor those and continue to remember. And and hopefully we can continue to have these traditions and meet these individuals and honor them for everything that they have done. And we'll we'll do everything we can on our part over here on the Night Shift Podcast, which you can follow along with, by the way, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Next episode coming up on Thursday. We'll recap and get everything sorted for the weekend. Mike, as always, you enjoy. We'll talk to you soon. 